Welcome to Well Good Movies, the podcast for film fans by film fans. Every episode, we look at films old and new to choose what should be preserved for all time in our movie vault. With lively topics, big questions, and crazy challenges to entertain us and our guests, we always look to have fun by giving you the topics worth discussing and the movies worth watching, even if there are some duds along the way. But don't just take my word for it. Here's a preview of what to expect in today's episode. The idea that it's not about sort of going off and blowing people up or taking money or doing any of that. It's about just, they're just thoroughly good. They're just very good chaps, you know. And if you go somewhere and you're a very good chap, then everything's probably better. And, you know, that's kind of the justification for all taking this whole huge concept of empire and turning it into a cosy, tiny concept of, I don't know. You know I think you empire. could argue that Colonel Nickerson wasn't actually very British at the point where at one point in the film, he did turn down Spam and Johnny Walker. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Well Good Movies, the podcast that gives you the topics worth discussing and the movies worth watching. And we hope you had a merry, merry Christmas because this is our episode now coming to you after Boxing Day talking about some of our favourite festive films. I am your host, David Osger, and I am joined by my co-host, Craig McDonald. Craig, how was your Christmas? It was a really nice time. It's one of the few times where I've had all of my family gathered around the fire. Granted, that's because our house burned down and we lost everything. But, you know, it's just a nice vibe nonetheless. Yeah, because this is definitely being recorded after Christmas. And uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I can see the date. It's the date that we're releasing, which is. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's after Christmas, I promise. We hope that everyone did have a lovely Christmas. You're all uh, full after your Christmas dinners and plenty of food going around. And today we're going to be talking about some very fun films, some perfect films to watch after the Christmas period. And we've got some perfect guests to talk all about that variety of different films you can get at this time of the year. So uh, let's go to them now. Uh, They are previous guests who have joined us before. We're always happy to have them back. First of all is our good old historian and all-round nerd, Di Hill. Hello, Di. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. uh, Enjoyed Christmas. Yes, yeah, definitely. (laughs) How how is uh, Christmas in the in the Hill household? It was it was great. I assume it was great. or will be. I don't really know what's happening right now. <laughs> you weren't there, Di. That, that's, that's what's actually happened. You that's got what us. I'm wondering now. Everyone's yeah. talking that Christmas has happened. I'm thinking, did I just sleep for like two weeks and I've woken up on Boxing Day? <laughs> you went to slay a dragon. That, that's, uh, that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, also joining us, uh, she joined us on our discussion of Willy Wonka. It is a film fan and another history expert is Liv Makanda. Hello, Liv. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, how was your Christmas? Well, it's a bit of an interesting one, if I'm entirely honest. For one, it was either terrible or phenomenal. I either saw everyone or no one. And I either got the perfect present or didn't. I'm not quite sure yet. Yeah, it's just it's Christmas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, hopefully you'll listen to this and then be like, ah, oh, 
yeah, I, I did sort that out. Thank, thank God. <laughs> this can be the, the ghost of uh, Christmas future of uh, podcasts. Weirdly, guys, so we've previously talked about, you know, Dai's expertise and Liv, you study in some ways like uh, archaeology, etc. And Dai is like a historian and you've both worked in museums. So uh, this is a coincidence that we didn't plan, but it, it's quite cool. We may as well be the same person. It seems <laughs> yeah. so. Yeah, I did also. I have an archaeology degree as well. Good stuff, yeah. So I I need to ask, well, I I don't think you've seen this, Liv, from my snooping on Letterbox, but uh, are you going to watch The Dig? Because I know that is one that Dai at one point talked about as somebody who had an archaeology degree. And if not, is there a perfect archaeology film to go check out? It's on my watch list, I won't lie to you, but it's one of those ones where you watch the trailer and you just think this could potentially be a very, very good Sunday afternoon film, or it could be terrible. And I don't want to ruin potentially the only archaeology film out there by watching it. (laughs) Whereas by not watching it, it's guaranteed to be good because I can just decide that it is. So It's like Schrodinger's cat of films like christmas again <laughs> die is there like an example that you would give is well liv said there maybe it's the only archaeology film i don't know is there another one out there that exists well i mean the greatest archaeology movies and the reason why we all go into the field um and to be honest the greatest theme song to sing while you're in a muddy hole digging while the water's filling up around your ankles is indiana jones Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And true. sort of humming while you're in an increasingly muddy puddle going. Da, 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 da. Question da, is, is, though, the first one or the third one? I also like the second, to be honest. <gasps> I like it. And no one's going to tell me it's not quite good. <laughs> Fair it, enough. It is definitely a movie. I watched, I rewatched them recently when I was like going through a, a Spielberg sort of rewatch phase. And like, there's just so many crazy things that happen in Temple of Doom in which I'm like, what is going on in this film is, is bonkers. But uh, yeah, I see also... that no one has mentioned the fourth. Yeah. Make of that what you will. <laughs> no oh, one's boy. mentioned Night at the Museum either, which is shocking. All of those films kind of are like Boxing Day movies as well. You know, those kind of comfort watch, you know, action adventure films that we've been discussing there, ones that often come on at Christmas time. And that is what we're talking about today is not necessarily Christmas films, but ones that we watch around the festive period, which we associate with, you know, Boxing Day or watching after Christmas or might even be before Christmas. Some ones that people have as a traditional Christmas film, uh, but doesn't necessarily actually take place at Christmas. But a lot of people might feel they're like, oh, that reminds me of Christmas or this is a Christmas film to me, uh, but wouldn't be actually categorized as that. So uh, each of us have got a film that we have chosen today, uh, which we're going to be talking about why it's a, a Boxing Day uh, unconventional Christmas film for us and uh, only one of them can go into the movie vault which will be a fun challenge uh so before we get into that uh, we'll go back to our guests now just to kind of use this as a chance to recap the year uh die uh, you know we've talked about how, how how your fictional christmas was uh, about how you blacked out but um how was 2021 for you in terms of film obviously we've talked previously about king arthur movies etc so there was a lot of films on your watch list and and did they come out on top in the end i was very excited to actually get back into the cinema this year um that was absolutely great to be able to actually just sit in there and watch a movie my the key event for me as you said gawain in the green knight 
which is specifically relevant for today because it is a Christmas movie. Uh, the poem and the movie is set on two consecutive Christmases. It should be marketed and designed to be a Christmas movie. I feel like they're missing an enormous trick by not making it a weird, spooky Christmas movie. So that's my takeaway from movies of this year. Did it actually come out on top for, you know, like your favourite film you've seen this year or? Don't know. I didn't, didn't really enjoy it that much, to be honest. I quite like Dune just because it's really loud. Uh, yeah, that's the whole time going. <laughs> that has been a favorite of people. When I, I think I originally saw it in like an, still a big screen, not like you saw like normal cinema screen, but like one of the like half ones between like normal and IMAX. But then when I saw it again in IMAX, and you get like you know the voice that's used like every time that was like you could hear like feel it underneath your chair, and you're like, oh my god, like you do, you do feel like you're going to be hypnotized yourself when you hear that. Feel like it wouldn't hold up in anywhere that's not the cinema because the story's really boring and pointless but like it's really impressive the whole thing you're like whoa this yeah. is big uh live what about yourself have you got a, a top film of the year at the moment have you had time to sort of think it over is there one that stands out without a doubt yes it's called shiver baby okay i i kid you not it's one of my favorite films of all time now it's directed by emma seligman the entire film is set uh like um a single shiver so like a jewish funeral you've got right if i pitch this to you you'll understand how phenomenal it is the entire plot is over the space of an hour where a girl has to interact with her sugar daddy and her ex-girlfriend whilst all her relatives are there okay <laughs> It sounds like a sort of like your shitty kind of filler movie that you get uh, just thrown around left, right and centre in the industry. But it genuinely is phenomenal film. It is so intense, so funny. It's got the perfect Aristotelian formula. It's the most unexpected film I've seen and it's never been widely released or anything like that. But I gave it five stars. It's brilliant. Yeah, there does seem to be a lot of that kind of niche cinema stuff that's come out you know obviously it comes out every year but the fact that people have been talking about things like lamb and then you've had things like the french dispatch so it's probably because there's like a lot of like rogues or cult filmmakers which maybe had films delayed from the year before as well so it just seems like there's like a whole lot of like weird random films thrown at us uh, this year so there's a big mix of people who are kind of like with different favorites which is interesting and there doesn't seem to be at this stage any kind of like obvious front runners for like the oscars and that kind of stuff so it'll be interesting going into uh awards season uh as for like christmas etc do you have you know we're talking about films maybe for boxing day but do you actually have like a, a traditional christmas film that you do watch every year before christmas here's the thing my mum makes me watch Elf every year and it's not of my choice. So it's definitely not a Christmas film that I watch. It's a Christmas film I'm forced to be in the room with. Then maybe there's something like Love Actually, which friends force me to watch every year. But again, it's not a choice that I choose. The closest I get to choosing a Christmas film is Harry Potter, which I suppose counts because it's got a Christmas tree in almost every film. So maybe it's that. Yeah, that that was one actually I was thinking of because um, I know one of our uh, previous guests, uh, Shelley Taylor, was uh, thinking of Harry Potter when we were discussing this episode before. And it's funny how the first film especially is kind of like thought more as one that could be seen as, Christ you know, as a Christmas film. 
I guess because they just have a bigger Christmas segment than maybe any other film and there's a lot of snow and the John Williams score and they're very much encapsulated in, well, it's Chris Columbus as well, isn't it, who you know, has directed things like Home Alone, etc. So yeah, the Harry Potter films do tend to have quite a big stake in Christmas because they're films that take place over the course of an entire year, but especially Philosopher's Stone has like quite a big Christmas segment and they have the jumpers and the snow and like you said, the big Christmas tree and all that kind of stuff. Which in turn also makes it my favourite Valentine's, Thanksgiving, Halloween, Easter film. You know, because anything that just takes place over an entire year, just all of your niche holidays, it's my favourite Father's Day, Mother's Day, International Women's Day, International Men's Day. I would love to see that in the film, just like Harry and friends celebrating International Women's Day or Easter, what like Halloween, yeah, it's like kind of the witches and the pumpkins and everything. But what a weird thing that would be to see in the Harry Potter films, like Easter. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past J.K. Rowling to push for a Harry Potter for every <laughs> single holiday. Probably not every single holiday, given some of the shit that she's involved in, but yeah. One uh, other film that we got suggested as an unconventional uh, Christmas Christmas watch, which has become a tradition for uh, one of our listeners, Paul Klein. Uh, he has an untraditional one, which is Train Spotting, which has become a Christmas tradition for him to watch every year. Uh, Liv, I know you had some thoughts on uh, Train Spotting as a Christmas film after recently watching it. What, what do you think of that choice? So I watched it for the first time because of this. I'm willing to say maybe it's a Christmas film for two reasons. One, there is a scene with cocaine which looks a bit like snow. And two, there are various points where people are in withdrawal, like we are from the jolliness of Christmas. However, it as a film, I just... How is this the right kind of catharsis you need at Christmas? You just sit there and it's just an onslaught of things happening. I'm like, no, I need nothing to happen in a Christmas <laughs> Surely it's more relaxing to just recreate train spotting as opposed to watching the film. Because at least then you're like high off your mind and not knowing what's going on. And that, that period between Christmas and New Year where nothing happens. I imagine that just zooms by. In the Christmas that has definitely already happened, Craig, did you spike the turkey? That, that sounds like a very horrible euphemism. I'm not going to get into that right now. So, uh, yeah, well, we'll go into now our actual picks for what we think are the perfect films to watch around the Christmas period, which aren't strictly your Elves or, you know, Muppets Christmas Carol, Home Alone, films that aren't necessarily Christmas films, but might give us that kind of festive feeling or we think are good to watch after Christmas. Because as we've already mentioned, Boxing Day, etc., you've had a lot of food, you've got some time off, there's not much to do because things are closed down or uh, it might be sale time, you might not want to go out and you just want to kind of enjoy your time around the family. And a film is always a great way uh, to sort of relax at the Christmas period and also is kind of a tradition, especially uh, over here in the States, etc., when you've got television, which you get your TV guides filled to the brim of, like, you know, what to watch at Christmas. So we're hoping to sort of pick some of those films and uh, give you some advice on what are the best Boxing Day movies to watch. And at the end of it, like I said earlier... Uh, we're going to choose just one of them to go into the movie vault, uh, which we think kind of deserves its place in there, maybe is like the best Boxing Day film. One of them is already in the movie vault, but we're actually going to do something a bit different here because 
when it went into the movie vault, we didn't discuss it specifically. We were kind of talking about musicals as a whole. So if Mary Poppins doesn't go in today, it gets, it goes out. So it's even more stakes into this one uh, in which one film will go in uh, and it might mean that another film leaves the movie vault quite controversially. So it's all on this one, guys. Have a think. Uh, maybe make your pitch when you're talking about uh, your film. Uh, so we'll go first now to Liv, who has, yeah, a very interesting and kind of something that will generate a kind of theme for this episode, I think, uh, from the get-go. So Liv, what is your Boxing Day movie? Okay, my Boxing Day movie is going to be Bridge on the River Kwai. Something I thought was going to be an outlier, but as we'll find out, apparently it's not. Um, 1957, I think it was made, directed by David Lean. It's about three hours, which is why normally I'm banned from watching it with people. Um, Basically, we've got a cast, William Holden, Alec Guinness, Jack Hawkins, Sesoya Hayakawa. I am always struggle to say his name. The plot, pretty simple. They are building a bridge over the River Kwai, a bunch of British prisoners of war. Got their Japanese captors instructing them to do this. Eventually, they decide we're going to make this a brilliant bridge. But then you've got this subplot going through of the other British uh, commandos attempting to blow this bridge up. Creates a lot of tension. Perfect for Boxing Day. I must call your attention, Colonel Saito, to Article 27 of the Geneva Convention. Belligerents may employ as workmen prisoners of war who are physically fit other than officers... Same major book. And by all means, you read English, I take it. Do you read Japanese? I'm sorry, no, but if it's a matter of precise translation, I'm sure that can be arranged. You see, the code specifically states that the... Diverse in the ranks! You speak to me of code? What code? The coward's code! What do you know of the soldier's code? Of Bushido? Nothing! You are a worthy of command! For yourself, why would you say, like, well, either one, why do you feel like, you know, personally, like, is this a. Tr- a traditional watch for yourself despite the fact some people might be like no i'm not watching it because of the you know the the length but you know has, has it got any specific memories for you or anything particular that you're like no i i can't watch that now it's july i need to watch this in december yeah part of me has to pick it out of spite at other people in my family not wanting to watch it uh but the other part of me has got to take advantage of Boxing Day for watching it because most people will be asleep, which is very useful for dealing with that. A great time to put on a film because it's not enough people to protest. But also, at the rest of the year, you you just look at the timestamp and you think, it doesn't feel like a three-hour film when it's on. But when you look at the timestamp, you feel like there's got to be a reason for watching it and calling it a Boxing Day film makes that reason for watching it. So it's just... It, this is one film that needs an excuse to be watched, and this has to be that excuse. Then, of course, there's that one 50-year-old man when I was six who mm-hmm. said it's a Boxing Day film, so I just have to believe him. I think it is worth noting of the four films we're discussing today, it is, and please correct me if I'm wrong, by far the longest? Uh, I'll have you know, Mary Poppins is only 15 minutes shorter. It, it's... 20 minutes shorter. Rounded to 15. Round it? No. That's rounding down for starts. Round it to the nearest 15 minutes. To be fair, though, this is one of the... There's a lot of 
I'd quote old films that I watched as a child, but this is one of the only ones where as an 11 year old, I was genuinely enthusiastic to watch. And it's three hours long. Does it hold up as a movie? Is it actually, is it good? It's phenomenally good. And I completely forgot this until I rewatched it yesterday. And to use a cliched quote, it is an excellent multifaceted critique on the nature of war. Yeah, well, it is often held up there with the kind of, you know, other films will allude to, I suppose. But, you know, like The Great Escape, Lawrence Arabia, Ben-Hur, Gone with the Wind, obviously, is kind of probably one of the big films that at any time I see like a, a Star Wars documentary or something, they're like, oh, you know, they cast Alec Guinness, you know, the star of uh, Bridge on the River Kwai. So I guess it kind of helped make him like a bigger name. And it's kind of thrown in there with these big like epics uh, of all time, which I guess all epics can also be considered like Boxing Day films because like you said, Liv, there's that element of like you have more time and there's just kind of something about that time of the year because I was watching a video essay recently about like cinematic and they were just analyzing the word cinematic, like what makes something cinematic and how people kind of throw it around in terms of like modern filmmakers when they're doing their video tutorials and they're doing things like advertisements or wedding videos and they're like, how how to make your films look more cinematic and it's kind of like adding the crop and making like fake grain and stuff like that but these are the type of films that actually have that and so yeah does does that kind of correlate with your experience of it do you kind of when you think of something like epic or cinematic do you think of this film definitely to be honest i remembered yesterday while i was watching it there were a couple of shots that would come up just pan across with the camera and i was sitting there thinking if they were using today's cameras that would probably be praised as an absolutely phenomenal shot like the composition is something that you would only associate with the word cinematic and it's just very underrated by modern audiences because they can't appreciate what people were working with what are they doing they're prisoners who are trying to build a bridge yeah so it becomes quite complicated because there are a number of parties who think they should be trying to escape but actually there's the alec guinness his character um i think colonel nicholson he is trying to make everyone cooperate. He is holding to his principles. He is saying, we will be uh, the most exemplary British officers. We will build the best bridge possible, not the worst bridge possible, because whilst the worst bridge will uh, like stop the enemy for a few months, will give them um, a lot of setbacks, the best bridge ever will stand after the war and it will say on it, British officers build this, we conducted ourselves the best. And it's like his principles spend the whole film in opposition to a lot of other people's principles about what war should be, what an army should be doing. It's also uh, fair to note that his principles throughout massively shift as well. And I think it's... I, I When I watched this film this morning, I have to agree with Liv, I think it's incredibly... I think it's an incredibly strong film. But it's very much... I see it as a critique on the nature of leadership and how they, uh, and how they interact within war versus people on the ground. Because there's very much a, a thing throughout the film that people with with the power in the film end up making the worst decisions. So at the beginning, Colonel Nicholson, because uh, he keeps quoting the Geneva Convention that any prisoners of war, the soldiers are allowed to do uh, the actual work, but any of the officers are not to do manual labour. The command, uh, the commander of the of the camp, what's what's his name, Liv? Um, Sato. Saito, yeah, uh, is very much no. I'm going to make you all work, 
to the point that the offer, uh, so Colonel Nurkerson is protesting, basically saying, under no circumstances will you make the officers work. And he, they negotiate, he tries to negotiate with him several times throughout the film. Eventually, he just gives up and says, okay, the officers won't work. So he then put, he then gets underway to start building this better bridge. They do things like choose a better location, um, up the amount of time the workers have to work. And it gets closer to the end and he says, oh, oh yeah, um, I asked the officers to work, uh, to work and they're doing so. At which point you're having to go, well, hang on, at the beginning of the film, you were very much no, and this bridge has just corrupted you. So it's very much self-inflated ego. And even to the point of the, of the end of the film, the climax, climax is incredibly gripping because it's a case of the people the people on the other side who have worked to try and sabotage the bridge, they're close to success, but then the river goes down and you could see the charges laid up. And it's Colonel Nickerson, the one who notices this and hunts down where the plunger is. And he's the one fighting with his, essentially, people on his own side because they're trying to destroy a bridge that he built that benefits the enemy. And it's only—it's all because of his ego, because of the power he was eventually given. There's also a point right at the start of the film when he's protesting officers working, where one of his officers almost dies because of standing out in the heat in protest with him, and he just leaves him lying on the floor all day. And it just makes me think, this film is kind of telling you you should not be putting principles before people like throughout the whole thing. But even with just the other leaders, not even just Nicholson, you get right at the end, you get one of the brass who's been uh, working with the commandos to explode the bridge, ends up killing a bunch of his own men, then kind of shrugging and hopping off the screen uh, and just like brushing it off in a somewhat humorful way. And you just sit there thinking, that's kind of what leaders in war do most of the time. They shrug it off and they just have a jolly walk away. The interesting thing as well, you know, when you see a war movie, like the one we'll talk about later, usually it's, you know, us versus them. Yeah. You know, like that's, I'd say probably 99% of war movies is automatically, you know, the goodies versus the baddies to some degree. Yeah. Whereas this is is sort of us versus us. It's the Japanese don't seem to feature particularly heavily in it, do they? They, they're not the main characters, but they are drivers in a lot of the places, I'd say. Yeah. So I think the reason it's not necessarily us versus them, though, it kind of implies it is at the start, but then it changes. I think a lot of it is potentially saying war should be about cooperation or war should be about us versus them, or it's trying to make you question which way around it should be. Because, or just life should be generally, because there are different characters saying we should be fighting them and different characters saying we should be working together. There's potentially some message in there saying, guys, let's stop fighting and work together. But there's also potentially a message saying, let's kill each other and get this war over with. So it's hard to tell which way the intention's actually going with the film. So, some of my favourite lines are the soldiers asking Colonel Nicholson, why aren't we sabotaging this bridge? Why are we making this bridge better for them? And this is very much because he has these really, really stupid ideals. And there are just times where you see the, the Japanese commander, Saito, just looking at him throughout the film and just thinking, yeah, he's doing a much better job than I could. 
It's interesting, though, because apparently at the time, a lot of military figures really hated the film. And yep. there were public statements released saying any British officer in a prisoner of war camp should be encouraging soldiers to escape and disrupt enemy plans. And like the, the film had that much of a like moral and emotional effect on people that they had to release those official statements. It's mental. Also, the Japanese hated it because the film implies that their engineers don't know what they're doing. Because <laughs> literally the entire point that they take over this just the Japanese don't know how to build a bridge for squat. We need to completely redesign this bridge. And they do, and then the British uh the sort of task force, whatever the hell it was called, turn up and they're like, that's a surprisingly complicated de- designed bridge for the Japanese. Like what's it was a pretty bridge though? Oh, it was be- it was beautiful. Uh I preferred it before they blew it up and the train fell off it. That that's one of the things I'm impressed by is that apparently it cost two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to build and the construction began before anyone had even been cast. So you can tell that they were like, This film's about a bridge. We need to get the bridge right. <laughs> it's like too bad that more films don't do that these days. They're just like, right, let's uh let's forget about like star power. Let's like get this one essential component right first. <laughs> it would have made Bridge of Spies more entertaining if they put more design into the bridge. <laughs> yeah. Well, Maybe. if it was a terrible bridge, they'd have to rename the film. Mm. It's the main character. I think there is something that what you guys were saying about something about war as well at Christmas time or something, whether the film is actually at Christmas time or not, is obviously we've had things like 1917 and like Hacksaw Ridge and uh, one of so my favorite similar films uh, from Steven Spielberg, which actually looking at it, it did come out on Christmas Day uh, originally, which was Empire of the Sun, which is quite similar. That kind of idea of being like, you know, a prisoner and kind of like accepting it to some way or form or kind of like getting on with it and sort of feeling the the ramifications that come with that. So I think some of that comes from that idea of like Christmas can be that time of year where it's like, oh, everyone comes together and you can always have Christmas. And that probably goes back to those kind of World War One, World War Two days of like, you know, the whole football game, isn't it? At the trenches, the idea of like, you know, and let's put things aside for this one day. I think that that component of like, oh, will he be home for Christmas? And, you know, the, the soldiers in the trenches thinking about Christmas and wanting to go home. I think that maybe because Christmas is this time of family and everything like that, that's why so many war films, etc., get associated with that time of year, because it's a time to sort of celebrate family togetherness, but also, like, think of when you might be away from home and, like, oh, imagine not being, you know, home for Christmas and that kind of idea. The other side of that as well is um, is the politics of the... is you know, the Christmas time, the idea of tradition and Queen's speech is a very conservative time of the year, and these most of these, particularly those old, the two that we're looking at today, are very much stiff upper lip, you know, Englishy, conservative sort of, you know, it sounds like Bridge Over the River Choir, sort of, you know, an English gentleman is better than everyone, basically. And that's, yeah. seen, you know, that's kind of the point, I guess, is that he's the most of a gentleman, so he just does a job well. But that's very, very political as well. And it's a very big part of Christmas is that tradition and, you know, that side of it. He does constantly ask for tea the moment he's in power. And also there's a point where he's giving he's giving a, a briefing on the new plans for this bridge. And he pauses it to say, this could be going on over dinner. Could we have our dinner served to us as we explain to you the plans? And just, 
Also, I'm very glad that you said that, Di, because I was going to make a joke which was basically saying the exact same thing, but in a much harsher context. <laughs> it's your racist old, you know... I was going to say it was a... It was, a pe- it was, it was going to be appeasing your your uh, racist grandparents who like the idea of shooting the Japanese. Yeah. But yeah. well, no, that whole story of, like, you know, the English gentleman being super good is a huge part of that kind of imperialistic um, propaganda of the time. Going back to like Kipling and stuff, you know, of um, the idea that it's not about sort of going off and blowing people up or taking money or doing any of that. It's about just they're just thoroughly good. They're just very good chaps, you know. And if you go somewhere and you're a very good chap, then everything's probably better. And, you know, that's kind of the justification for all taking this whole huge concept of empire and turning it into a cosy, tiny concept of, I don't know. You know I think you empire. could argue that Colonel Nickerson wasn't actually very British at the point where at one point in the film, he did turn down Spam and Johnny Walker. <laughs> <laughs> I do. He turned down Spam. <gasps> like, my I heart. forgot. I forgot that there was corned beef in this film. I literally saw it. Thought, what is that? It that can't be corned beef, surely? And he's like, British corned beef. Oh, wow. Okay. He slices it so beautifully, though, and treats it as if it were the biggest turkey in the land. <laughs> that that right there is. Uh, that, that's why it's a Christmas film. There's uh, there's definitely some uh, big meals going on in this one. So, uh, Lev, if if so, you were saying before about people who maybe don't want to watch it because of the time and everything like that. But if you were to sell this to somebody who was deciding their Boxing Day film and had never seen this film and didn't know it was three hours long, you know, what what would be your pitch? Why do you think it's perfect to watch at that time? Why is it so personal to you? I think this film, people look at it on paper and they think, I will not like this. But when you actually watch it, you realize it is absolutely hilarious in so many places. It doesn't feel like three hours. It is over so quickly and it really does get you engaged because there is someone who believes the same sort of things as you do in the film. So there's someone to root for or there's something to root for, no matter whose side you're on. And for some reason, just the composition of the film, it flows so well that you're not going to actually end up looking away and deciding you need to go and fetch the cheese board at any point you're genuinely going to sit there and when the film ends think oh is it is it already five o'clock it's it just really draws you in in a way that you don't expect and i think if anything the fact that you're not going to expect it is a reason to watch it in itself i do love the idea as well going back to the britishness of spam and stuff it's like this film will not make you go to the cheese board it's like okay well (laughs) this is definitely definitely one to convert the masses then Uh, we'll go to our next film now, uh, which is my choice. Uh, this one was released in 1963. Allied prisoners of war plan for several hundred of their... Oh, sorry, sorry, I'm talking about the wrong film. This is The Great Escape. No, I'm, I'm talking about that much better version. Chicken Run. <laughs> released back in 2000. Uh, this is a breezy hour and 24 minutes. Uh, it is, of course, from Ardman Studios uh, in collaboration with DreamWorks, directed by Peter Lord and Nick Park, uh, who also worked on the story as writers, along with Carrie Kirkpatrick. And it stars the voices of Mel Gibson, Julia, I can't say that, Julia Sawala, uh, Phil Daniels as Fletcher, uh, along with uh, Tony Haygarth. Jane Horrocks, Miranda Richardson, Timothy Spall, and Imelda Staunton. 
this film is all about uh, when a cockerel apparently flies into a chicken farm. The chickens see him as an opportunity uh, to use him to escape their evil owners. And uh, yeah, this was uh, released all the way back in 2000. So yeah, for me, I think that this obviously does carry a lot of the, you know, similar tropes in that it's kind of referencing and based off a famous kind of like Christmas Boxing Day movie with The Great Escape. It's something that is kind of, you know, a pastiche to that and referencing it so, so much and has a lot of the themes and elements that we're talking about, but in a sort of warmer, fluffier kind of way because it's an animation. And yeah, there's nothing in here really about Christmas, but what I think is interesting about it is one that we've never really had a chance to talk about stop motion animation on the podcast before and i think that you know that's definitely a big appeal of this film and of Ardman. and there's already a kind of christmas boxing day nature to animation but also stop motion animation you know i was almost tempted to choose something like the wrong trousers for this because i think a lot of people will think of those Wallace and Gromit shorts when they think about like Christmas time or Boxing Day because uh, the BBC might sort of show all of those shorts like you know close shave uh, wrong trousers or they might show show them like one every day or something like that but I think what is impressive with Chicken Run is the fact that it's also incorporating a lot of the elements and things that make us think about Christmas in like a darker kind of way. I think almost the fact that they are chickens potentially getting cooked has a nature of kind of like, oh, like turkeys, you know, and how turkeys are all, you know, mass farmed and we're all eating this like poultry, etc. And you always get those like moments around Christmas time on like daytime television or morning television where there's somebody there to turkey farm and they're like, oh, all these turkeys will be on our plates in a few weeks. And there is kind of like a you know like savageness to it in a way and this kind of like idea of like you know the big feast and all of that kind of stuff and especially these days in terms of like vegetarians and vegans i best you know they they probably love this film even more so that uh, they're escaping their captors but uh i think there's just something kind of about stop motion animation that just has that charm has that kind of very like natural aesthetic to it this like warm kind of feeling Uh, that makes you think of times like Christmas in which you can put on something and like we were saying before you're not going to be kind of thinking about like dark themes about uh, you know like depressing subject matter Uh, you can kind of just put it on and know that you've got like 90 minutes in which you can check on chicken run and then you can easily go watch another film you can include it as a part of your marathon or you can go back to your games or your meals or whatever else you're getting up to at Christmas time it might be something that you enjoy like in the morning or you can watch like at night as something which is quite so small and, and consumable to have and it just holds up really well i think that it's obviously now getting a sequel as well which is impressive um it's a really solid script it's got like loads of great puns and like clever lines of dialogue um but they really managed to compress this story in a really effective way by introducing each character showing what their motives are really encapsulating who they are as characters throughout and what's really impressive as well and i think this is something which is a part of the britishness of it which make maybe makes it a bit more christmassy is that blend of dark and light is the fact that there is a scene in this in which you know a, a literally a chicken goes to their death to their execution um you know like families and kids would be watching this at christmas time or other times of the year 
you know, like laughing and having fun with it. But at the same time, it's about this like dark, grim subject matter about, you know, chicken farming. And it's in this dark, depressing world, you know, which is very much, again, based on like the great escape, like the set design, etc. is so fantastic that all of these bright, colorful chickens are there in this like very grim war looking scenario like literally a prison camp with like this horrible barbed wire and it's it's only what that effect you could get through stop motion because everything is there is real and like tangible and like you you know you can feel it and i think that that comes through when you see like the spoon in the dirt or the the christmas lights and stuff like that which you do have so there is an element to christmas in this they do have a party and it features christmas lights so you got a bit of christmasiness there as well has, has anyone got else got like a similar experience with this film when when watching it at certain times of the year or Ardman in general? Yeah, just everything by Ardman is amazing, really. Um, and as you say, they're all just stuff which the whole family can always enjoy. And you can just they're similar like chicken run is something which I think most of us probably know so well now that you can just dip in at any point and be like, oh, I don't want to be in a pie, and it's just quite fun, you know. So yeah, I think it's just a great lovely movie as with all the wallace and gromit stuff and the pirates movie they made that was a hello movie as well we'll say one thing about chicken run is something that i never noticed watching as a child how many puns there are and i'm shocked that parents don't hate the film more because of that exact reason because all of them go over the children's heads because they just they just don't realize the phrases yet or the links or anything like that but the parents I've got to hate it, but apparently don't they don't. They love it regardless, which always gets me. And I suppose I love it regardless too, but oh, so many puns. <laughs> I think what helps the puns though is that it's mostly just the rats just doing them. And at the time, whenever they're doing them, they tend to be just commentating on the weird sort of chaos that the chickens are involved in. But I didn't realise how clever some of them were. Like I genuinely lost it when I heard the phrase Attila the Hen. I just thought that was so funny. I I just never remember picking up on it before. Up and at him, gals. Let's flap. Right, fetcher. Let's see if old Attila the Hen has come to her senses. What's this caper, love? We're flying! Obviously. You Flipping hell. Look at this fit. They're gonna kill themselves. Wanna watch? Yeah, all right. Flop 
together. <laughs> well, it's when um, the rooster got accused of being on the run. Yes, he is. He's on the chicken run. <laughs> and I hate that that was pointed out to me. Yeah, I did also like the line where he says, you know, like Rocky does have like quite a few great lines like that where he's talking about like soft boiled, hard boiled, that kind of stuff. Like, you know, you're full 20 minutes and all this kind of stuff. So it's funny how many like chicken egg puns they can put in there without being kind of too on the nose, kind of Arnie is Mr. Freeze, kind of like, you know, ice to see you. It's not that kind of stuff. They just kind of throw it in there subtly, which I think is a big part of the British charm. It's similar with Walson Gromit as well in like the way rabbit is where it's just like this was arson yeah somebody arson around it's just such a british like humor and just such a great like you know satirical like silly line but it could only come from these kind of writers but it it, it is really clever so like when uh, rocky says you know you're the first chick i've met with their uh, with their shell still on you know it's it's just something about that and when you first hear it you kind of like you just kind of don't notice it but the more you watch it or the more you pay attention to certain lines you're like oh that, that that's clever that you know it's, it's quite good how they've done that i do need to pay uh, attention to probably the line that no matter what everyone will remember from childhood mrs tweedy the chickens are revolting finally something we can agree on peak that film and also i just i don't know why i just love the way he says you thieving little buggers <laughs> yeah <laughs> and the fact they keep saying about like you know they're organized you know and all that kind of stuff and he's just like yeah when he finds them and just like his reaction it the thing that makes me laugh about this film like watching it as an adult but i suppose even as a kid because you think about it like these days as well like obviously a lot of people point out this stupidity of it but obviously disney remakes will happen because they largely have a human cast but when it comes to things like lady and the tramp and lion king everyone's a bit like well what it's just still an animated film and why do you want to see a realistic lion that doesn't give you the charm of what you get with animation and it's funny funny to me that nobody has ever kind of looked at stop motion and gone like oh we need a live action version of this you know it's like because stop motion is such a like perfect example of why animation is a perfect medium for so many reasons and is a great storytelling tool and you couldn't tell this any other way like can you imagine like a bunch of chickens just wandering around with hats and necklaces it just would look like the most unengaging thing because there would be no expressions from those animals at all i think you're missing the bigger issue of that which (laughs) is you'd have to have a scene where you're trying to get real chickens to do a load of things like sew the wings of their aeroplane <laughs> well to be fair i don't think they got real lions to be <laughs> in in the lion king either but in the lion king what was the most advanced thing that they have to do just sort of run around at each other they yeah. don't have to do anything that usually would require opposable thumbs no. yeah in this they are on two legs whereas in the lion king they are acting like animals yeah i see what you mean but um i want to see like somebody take like pictures of the characters in real life maybe because I would love to see, maybe do it like as the the Tweedy's point of view. I would love him to just be kind of like looking at the chickens and just seeing this chicken with a hat and a scarf. And the fact that they're like, yeah, throw that chicken in, in the machine. And they're like, did nobody think to go like, um, should we take off their little hat and scarf? Because that kind of might spoil the pie a bit. <laughs> or pluck them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just, but also to go on that darkness aspect as well, I think there's there's kind of like a pantomime aspect to it, I suppose, with somebody like Mrs. Tweedy, in which she's such like a sinister evil villain, 
and again only the kind of villain that you know Ardman could do especially just for the full 180 that she has but it, you kind of buy into it that like for most of it she's just there or like kind of like prim and proper and then just turns into complete psycho at the end in which she's there literally with an axe and the fact that all the way up until that point her husband's been like the chickens are like organized they're doing something and she's like you know you're crazy you know what, what are you on about but the fact that then she just sees them launching a full barn plane and is just like oh shit they're trying to get away i'm not letting this happen she doesn't question it for a moment and just turns into a full psychopath with like animal noises but i love it <laughs> what i also love about the way they use mrs tweedy is that it also the way they use her also just demonstrates really good story structure because obviously the fact that the end she's very fixated on using the axe and at the beginning it's very much the fact that she uh she kills that one chicken is it elsie or um edwina edwina yeah i think so okay i i'm not convinced that's the name but i will go with it for now <laughs> um the fact that obviously she kills edwina to eat using the axe and then there's that beautiful fake out with ginger it's very much they use her as the sign of you know the way in which she uses oppression over the chickens versus that act being the final thing that frees the chickens. Cause obviously then cuts through the fairy lights. It's just really good symbolism. And I don't know if that's me trying to think too advanced into chicken run. Um, or if that is genuinely the sort of, Im- presumably that is the sort of imagery they are just going for, but it's just really good that they are using those sort of story techniques. It is just a really well-constructed story. And I think back to what you saying about the um, all the puns and things, a lot of the subtle, a lot of the little puns work in a movie like that because they're just um, part of the narrative flow of the scene. So in order to say, when he does the whole thing about describing, he's like, you're hard-boiled and things, like he's getting a point across, which you know, has a point in the scene. So you're not pausing the whole movie to make a little pun. Apart from when, say, at the very end with those, the the rats like sit down for ages, I think, and they just do puns for like two minutes, but that's just like the end. But um, uh, yeah, it's just um, a well-constructed actual plot of a movie with characters doing stuff um, and all of the jokes and all of those like little details and actors, you know, um, they all are essential parts of the structure um, rather than kind of story and then kind of pause, tell a joke and then go back to the story, which a lot yeah. of, Worst comedies, you know, they'll have story and then they'll pause, tell some jokes and then they'll go back to the story. Yeah, that's why I also like about it is that it treats the characters with respect. And like you said, that it doesn't kind of like, that you know, nobody's like the butt of a joke or anything like that. There's characters who are silly, um, but they don't sort of treat them as like, oh, haha, they're so stupid kind of thing. They just sort of like say, oh, aren't they, you know, affectionately um, a bit dim or something like that. But And there's no point in which like the film just stops and just has like a completely silly joke or anything like that there's kind of always like a purpose to it or there's like a character motivation or if it is there's kind of like a charm or a way that it's done kind of tastefully but if there was like if this was another animated film or if this was even like a cgi modern film i think they would just fall into a lot of pitfalls or easy mistakes to make be like oh you know we have to do this or we have to do that um you know we have to have this scene in which like i know they're on a farm or imagine if they meet a sheep or something you know like it's just the fact that they they restrain themselves and saying like right let's keep ourselves contained and i think talking about that story aspect is that again it shows from the get-go that they kind of go okay you need to understand the plight of these chickens 
we're going to have like an entire intro, which, by the way, fantastic score as well, um, which I think is from Harry Gregson Williams. Um, really good use of like kazoo <laughs> um, and really gives you that feel of the escape film. Um, and But that entire sequence, you don't hear the characters once, like, you know, the actual chickens. So you're already invested in them before you hear their voices. But then straight after that, you have not long after that death scene of Ed- Edwina. And it's a really grim, you know, way to, you know, lead into a film. But it makes you then automatically be like, right, I understand this. I'm on board with the chickens. There's so many films now, animated films, etc., where you're kind of like, you go along with what they want to do because they say that they want to do it. Whereas this film shows you, right, this is the consequences. This is what their lives are like. So literally by showing them like all this moment in which this chicken, you sh- you see the axe in the in the log and there's this moment in which they hear, the, you know, the thump of the, the axe going down and like Ginger watching, like scared. You're like, oh my God, I understand. You know, like you completely buy into their plight and you like sort of join them on that emotional journey which i think so it shows like how how to really invest in in your sort of characters i think i think in a weird way though it's like it gets you to invest in the characters yeah but it, the characters throughout the entire film are secondary to the mm. plot whereas most films these days the plot is secondary to the characters which is kind of annoying quality rise because if they don't hit the mark exactly with the characters you're not going to care so it's just it's a very good idea and talking about like as well how they treat the characters with respect like i i saw do love fact the fowler is like played throughout this film so much as like you know his shtick is that he's like the military guy and you know it's, it's always kind of like this is the joke that you have with him but then later on to not make him like the butt of a joke it's not the ginger then needs to like fly the plane or anything like that it's the like no he has his moment to shine and his military know-how and all this stuff they've built up was actually for a reason but it, it's combined with the fantastic joke i always just love that moment when she just is there and she's just like um are we ready to go fowler and he's behind her like yep i'm ready to go when you are and she's like what are you doing there and he's just like he's almost like the audience at that point in which he actually goes just like i'm a chicken they wouldn't let us fly a complex aircraft and i'm just like thank you the fact in which that film almost acknowledges this is an animated film a chicken should not be flying a plane so it just makes me laugh that he kind of goes like what are you on about i'm a chicken i can't fly this it just it just cracks me up but it's just an endearing moment as well that he actually becomes like a a kind of hero for the story as well i also think i love the casting of this film even though the vast majority of actors I'm unfamiliar with exactly who they are, apart from one notable exception, which once I made the connection today sort of blew my mind. I just think that they embody the characters really well and just... I don't know what it is about Aardman. They just seem to either just find the perfect people who just have the right quirky British energy that just come out in all of the characters, or they just get the right or they just get incredibly animated people and just tell them exactly what they need to do to just have them fit in. The one that struck me the moment I realised was uh, uh, Bunty being played by Imelda Staten, a.k.a. Dolores Umbridge. Yes, that festering, nightmarish vision of pink plays a chicken in this film and you don't realise it until you look it up. That's how good a performance she gives. She literally moulds herself into such a different 
such a different character. And it's just even Mel Gibson, who obviously in current days is under massive disrepute. Um, just listening back to that performance is just seeing just how natural and charismatic it is. It's just really nice to in- really nice to enjoy. And fun fact, I used to have a cockerel named Rocky because of Rocky, uh, the Rhode Island Red. See, I have a similar thing to your Amanda Stoughton phenomenon with uh, my watches of it. So both Babs and Ginger are played by people who are in my favourite, well, one of my favourite TV shows, absolutely fabulous. Um, and every single time I watch Chicken Run, without a doubt, I, around 45 to 50 minutes in, I check. I'm like, wait, is that... And end up checking it every single time I watch it. It's like some weird Groundhog Day thing. I check and it, it's, it is them, but I don't know how. I, I just don't realize until that point. They, they're they just that good at fitting to the film. Also, in terms of the darkness as well, I was going to say, like, was something that I think is impressive as well for a kids' film because there's so many times in which you're watching, like, TV programs or animated things, there's always this thing of like, oh, you can't say like, you know, they're going to die. It's always something like they're going to get blown up or destroyed or something. But this film is just literally like, they're going to kill us. You know, like we we are dying and things like that. There's so many times in which they just mentioned death. We're being killed. They're going to, you know, like, you know, they're uh, fattening us up and all this kind of, they're going to kill us all and all this kind of stuff. You're like, wow, you know, this really is going for it in terms of like, pushing for that uh so you know it, it just makes yeah, that like, in that way yeah that's true yeah like yeah Ardman does have a kind of like Roald Dahl-esque nature to it I guess as well yeah I love that it, you know it's a fantastic film it's, it's kind of feel good but also has the darkness um that you kind of get with you know I suppose Christmas films like Christmas Carol or Nightmare Before Christmas and uh yeah is you know it's just a, a kind of easy breezy watch which has loads of great jokes and and it is a fun time. So uh, we'll move on now, going from uh, happy-go-lucky chickens <laughs> to uh, more warfare. <laughs> so, uh, Di, it's over to your choice. I went for those uh, weird war movies that play every Christmas time and some, like, your weird old granddad watches them religiously. And I've gone for Zulu from 1964, directed by... Cyril Endfield, apparently is a director. Notable, it's Michael Caine's first major movie uh, was Zulu. And it's about a small group of soldiers uh, who have been busy invading South Africa for reasons which they don't really go into. Basically get attacked by a whole ton of Zulu warriors. And can they survive a load of big buggers with spears coming and running at them for, you know, a full two hours? And the answer is yes, they do survive. As a movie, it's very well made, but I think plot-wise, it's slightly tiresome and kind of, you, you can't, nowadays, you can't really avoid the this super imperialistic, like, pro-war politics of it, where um, the whole thing is really, really aiming at just forcing you to believe that war is a good idea just for the sake of it, um, where, to the point at which there's one kind of dissenting voice against war, who is this priest, who... He's the one who kind of says, like, oh, maybe we shouldn't fight all these people. Um, and everyone just basically tells him to shut up, locks him up in the box. Um, whereupon, because he's sort of, because he's the weak man of them, he gets drunk and breaks as a character and they have to, like, send him away on a horse because he's a weak man and he believes in peace. 
and everyone else is like, no, we're going to bloody have a good old fight and it's going to be fun. And at the end, the Zulus go, well, that was a great fight. We're going home now. And all they have is the really like pathetically conciliatory, quite confusing line at the end. After you've all had two hours of like great fun, you know, blowing things up and shooting each other, one of them goes, and how does that make you feel? I feel ashamed. And they're like, it was bloody fun though, wasn't it? All this war. So yeah, I think from a modern, it's uh, not really worth the rewatch, to be honest. In terms of the construction of how to make um, an exciting war movie, it's very, very well made. But in terms of an actual kind of story to like watch, you know, I think we're a bit beyond it, really. It's all a bit kind of old fashioned. You think the worst can't do better than that, Owen? Well, they've got a very good base section in mind. But no top tenors, that's for sure. Stop your dreaming. Can't you see their spear points gleaming? See their warrior pennon streaming to this battlefield. Sing! Men of Alex, stand ye steady. Yeah, definitely goes to what you were saying earlier about like this like kind of imperialistic viewpoint this kind of like you know oh very british and i think when i whenever i think of this film i just think of michael kane well you know all the soldiers that uniform it's just such a kind of like view of that era of britain and just this kind of like nature of, of war film it definitely explains as well the way in which because I can, I, I can see that definitely this has created a perception for you as well. Because obviously the questions you were asking about, asking us about uh, Bridge on the River Kwai, and just that idea that anything that's made sort of around that time would have that sort of narrative to it that it's very much ingrained in the. Don't know how to describe it apart from just. I, th- I think Liv jokingly said earlier. Um, I can't remember if this is on the recording or before it that anything which is very nationalist uh, tends to be around Christmas. Um, it definitely sounds like it has that kind of vibe to it. Um, very quick question, because I did not get a chance to fully watch this film, and I can imagine that, especially if we're talking about Zulu warriors, how badly racist is it? Well, it's a funny one, actually. It gets praised, um, because it's basically the only movie that depicts the Zulu people as human. Um, but really the whole thing is just to justify, just an excuse to justify invading them and blowing them up. So all the way through the movie, they emphasize this idea that they're really clever soldiers and they're constantly kind of tricking and beating the, 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 the British soldiers. Um, so they do tricks like, um, there's a whole sequence where they, at the very beginning, they kind of march up and have a sing song at the kind of British lines and the British open fire at them. And after a minute, you realize that none of the Zulus are actually attacking. They just stood there and just trying to dodge sort of thing. And then there's this kind of, um, there's this Boer fellow with them who knows a bit about the Zulus. And they kind of go, well, why aren't they attacking? And he goes, no, look up on the hill there. There's uh, the chief is up there. He's counting all of your guns. They don't want to attack yet. And, you know, and it's, they're really like clever. But really the reason they emphasize the intelligence of the Zulu characters is to kind of justify 
make them into a more dangerous enemy. You know, they if they were just, you know, nameless animal savages, it's really easy to kill them and slaughter them. But because they are human, it seems more honorable for the soldiers to fight them. Um, there's also a weird amount of um, one of the things that's striking in the movie uh, is that most of the characters, well, none of the officers are Welsh, but they emphasize that most of the, um, the rank and file infantry um, were from Wales. Um, later on, the regiment became the South Wales borderers. At the time, they weren't. Um, but they go in a lot of emphasis about that. And in fact, there's a famous scene where um, the Zulus kind of do a big war song at the British. And so the Welsh start singing Men of Harlech back at them. Um, but really that kind of, which really interested me, you know, with being Welsh, um, but there's tiny little subtle tricks in it that really emphasize this kind of pro-empire stance point where like this whole idea, the song Men of Harlech, the original lyrics are specifically about Welsh people going and shooting English people, at, well, fighting them. It's about the siege of Harlech, uh, where the English were invading, you know, completely unjustified and building their empire and the Welsh and the song literally has the lyrics that they'll drive out the Saxons. And, um, and the original lyrics as well, they talk about, they refer to them, it's not Welshmen shall not yield, it's Cymru shall not yield, and Britain shall not yield. Um, but for this movie, they change the lyrics to make them, you know, vaguer and not about fighting English people. They're not about fighting the empire, they're just vaguely about Welsh people fighting. Um, so you end up with a scene where it's this people who are um, defending their homeland and just singing a song about defending their homeland to a load of other people who were also parts of this empire singing a song about when they were trying to defend their homeland and failed and now they're being completely neutered down and they're all part of this big old imperial system um so yeah it's lots of like subtle layers in order to build just a general culture of um of that sort of thing so it's a bit of a confusing watch really um but as i say very well crafted as a movie um really difficult not to craft it well because You've got this amazing environment they're in, these huge mountains, and you know the um, the color of the uniforms works fantastically because you know this great red really stands out against all the kind of def different colors, and, and the Zulu uniforms look absolutely fantastic, and the music and everything so vivid and vibrant that um, it's really difficult not to make a really great movie about this. I'd have thought. Yeah, it's one of the things that benefits again from that you know that time is that obviously it was always going to be have to be practical and have to sort of film in you know a specific location and and use you know these real people and that's what I always remember is like you said is you know watching it as like my granddad's or my dad and being like oh what's this oh this is Zulu you know like this is like you know one of these films you know you you have to see and I always remember that you know shot of them coming over the hill and and doing the chant and sort of like you know running down etc and you know you're kind of sort of like oh, oh my god you know it's kind of like the same effect as you get with something like westerns um also like certain medieval films in which you'll see like you know these big armies of characters and stuff like that in which maybe that's like your kind of first view of that at that point of history um which i guess in a way kind of goes down to what you know the conversation has been around for like the past two three three years is of like you know glorifying like you know uh some of like britain's past and stuff like that sometimes we like glaze over this kind of stuff um, in which like you watch something like this and like you're like oh I, I, why do I not know more about you know what what is this you know or like what what sort of era this is sort of centered around and but yeah that that sort of image of the Zulu sort of coming down was always the one that stood out to me. Well I think what's something striking and particularly the way that um, 
you know, number, it, recently I was re reading a couple of like a big political leader in the Zulu nation um, came out and said he likes the movie basically because it's the only movie that they're in. Like it's the only major movie that actually even depicts Zulu people. Yeah, but I reckon, you know, modern days, a more interesting movie would be from the perspective of the Zulu people. You know, the idea that because surely they're the rebels against the evil empire, like they're Luke Skywalker fighting against this whole, you know, futuristic advanced empire. That would be a really interesting movie. And then they, and in that movie, they do win. And they did win at Isandwalana and they did drive the, um, the British army out. So that would be an awesome movie. But to, showing it from the other perspective um, is uh, really not that interesting, to be honest. You spend most of the movie rooting for the Zulus, to be honest, um, because they're really cool and creative and they're coming up with smart plans and things. Um, whereas the British are just kind of stood in a circle shooting at things and having stiff upper lips and occasionally singing. It does show the kind of generational change, isn't it? Like back then, you know, obviously if you watch something like a World War II film, then, you know, you're not going to sort of support like Nazis, but it was always very much that idea of like, yeah, like, you know, Britishnessness, like just watch these people like beat them. There's nothing kind of like wholly engaging about it. Whereas like these days you get something like Jojo Rabbit, which goes like, actually, what if we looked at like a, a young boy who was a part of, you know, the Nazis or like Hitler youth and realized, you know, what he was a part of. So, you know, we've got more creative in that sense. But when we looked at like, like the previous film with like Bridge, it was kind of like similar ones with uh, Lawrence of Arabia and these big epics and stuff. But when you look at like suggestions for this film, it's kind of like Zulu Dawn, Waterloo, Italian Job, The Man Who Would Be King. So it's kind of like it's almost saying they're like, yeah, we know that this film is kind of just a Michael Caine movie or it's just kind of like this big like war film. But it's not gone down in like the history of being like this great epic, which has more to it than it's kind of... It's action, essentially. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it is well-constructed, you know, each character. And it's a, I think it's a lesson to... The thing that really stood out to me was um, comparing it to the Hobbit movie recently, the um, the Battle of the Five Armies, where people said that movie can't possibly work because it's just about some people in a mountain being attacked by a big army. That's not a movie. But basically, Zulu's got even less plot than that Hobbit movie did. But it's an, an exercise in how you, you can take such a limited concept of just there's a ton of Zulus coming at us, what are we going to do? And turn it into, you know, something that is engaging for two hours. Um, so I guess it's a lesson for Peter Jackson in, in that Hobbit movie particularly, where there could have been a great movie there about how do these dwarves respond to this humongous pile of orcs coming at them. But, uh, you know, less confident filmmakers, maybe this whole thing of like all the CGI and stuff and the modern desperation to have lots of like whiz bangs and stuff going on all of the time um, means they pile more and more and stuff in. But sometimes in that move, Zulu, very, very minimal. It does hold your attention um, because there are characters within it all. I want to take a very cynical approach to what you just said at one point in that, where you said there's they do very well when there's not a lot in there. Um, so I'm going to stand by this and feel free to hate me. The first 15 minutes, great setup, solid start. The last 20 minutes, absolutely phenomenal film, uh, like when the British are on their last legs for the formation, when you've got the suspense of are they going to attack us again, when you've got like from the fire onwards, that kind of period of time, like it's so intense, you're, you're up in arrears, you don't know what's going on, and it's very explosive, uh, characters are kind of, their like inner layers are coming out, it's very good. In between that, 
I am not going to lie. In my ranking of war, um, I've got a big list of war films from the uh, like 50s and 60s. I have put it as the lowest because of the 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 entire middle because I it just could not engage me no matter how much I wanted it to. There's nothing particularly original about the characters is one of the issues I guess is that the kind of conflict of you know the two officers one of them is an old guy one is a young guy you're like oh yeah I've seen it and the, there's the guy in the medical tent who's he's a bloody he's a wrong and he is oh he's a drunk and he's a wrong and he's constantly dodging she's and then oh lo and behold he turns out to like fight bravely in the end and you're like yeah I know that's going to happen um yeah you're right that you know to say like it's really well constructed but there's nothing particularly um uh stand out in terms of originality or anything you know it's just a really well constructed movie um within the amazing visual landscape of south africa you know that's what really brings it above other things is just the the landscape that they're in and all of the stuff with the zulu people you know and they're so interesting and the army moving and stuff um and the way they use um and apparently it's very very accurate as well the, the movements of the zulu army they had um uh, the people that the extras they use, a lot of them were ancestors of the of the army from the time, and a number of the advisors they have are people who genuinely know knew about Zulu tactics, and so um, yeah, all of the war chants and the tactics and the movements and things are very accurate, and they are really really vivid and vibrant and fascinating to watch, but yeah, it's other than that, it's all very standard sort of stuff, and politically pretty bleak. <laughs> And also for that change in kind of generation as well is that we have kind of in some ways you know it's not maybe as popular now because obviously you've got things like superhero films fantasy sci-fi has become more popular but you will have like your avatars which will be like oh you know we are showing the kind of like uh natives being invaded kind of thing but it has to obviously be like blue aliens and it needs to be like they're used as the metaphor rather than actually just showing like the you know the actual uh natives and ab- aboriginals etc you know there's always kind of like like you know star wars and all these kind of things it has to be just kind of like they're using it as a metaphor rather than actually having these films in which we can actually show native americans or uh you know south africans etc we we have to kind of like skirt around it by using some alien species or something like that i find it interesting you chose avatar considering that most people just say that the entire plot of avatar is just the entire plot of dances with wolves which obviously is the sort of realistic story that you want but even yeah. you know dances with wolves is is the, the whole white savior narrative you know it's uh the, the the you know the natives can't save themselves they're waiting for a white dude to turn up but yeah i think the moment we get the, the the first Zulu war from the perspective of the Zulu people, that would be a huge you know moment I think in society you know to be able to actually um, tell an honest story from a, a different perspective would be amazing. But I well we're clearly not there yet because we haven't got the movie yet. No. Well, is there anything Di that you would say that you would recommend this as a Boxing Day movie? Do you think that it is so perfect for this time of year because of the runtime or because of its very nature or its kind of genre do, do you sort of you know what what made you sort of lure to it yeah what we were saying about like all the characters being fairly standard nothing is a surprise in this movie and maybe that speaks to like that kind of boxing day thing we don't want movies that will surprise us or challenge us because we're too full of turkey and like port and so we just want something that confirms that we can go right oh yeah they're oh, they're all gonna be fine there's a lot of Zulus, but they're all right. Um, and everyone's going to be 
you know, no one's going to be jump out of the box to do anything surprising. It's all just going to be gentle and okay. I think that's probably what makes a Boxing Day movie. Yeah, exactly. Okay, then. So, uh, well, we'll see uh, how how it, that is challenged or how it's different with our final film. So over to Craig. So I'm very much going against the grain in that this is a film in which absolutely no one is at stake. No one's going to die. This isn't a war film. You cannot make this into any form of allegory of it being a war film. This is very much just a family film. My choice is Mary Poppins. So released in 1964, this is obviously the Disney classic starring Julie Andrews as Mary Poppins, Dick Van Dyke as Bert, uh, as well as having a secondary role as um, uh, the senior Mr. Dawes, um, David Tomlinson as George Banks, uh, Glynis Johns as Winifred Banks, uh, Karen Detrice as Jane, Matthew Garber as Michael, and having a cameo role, I'm going to mention, because he's my absolute boy in terms of old school American comedy, uh, Ed Wynn as Uncle Albert, uh, also known as the laughing, the laughing guy on the ceiling. I had to I had to mention this film for several reasons. One, this is just your sort of quintessential BBC one. This will be on at some point over the Christmas holidays. This will this will just feed into that area of time in the day where something like Homes Under the Hammer would have all, would have been in, but they need something to entertain the kids. Um, and this slots in quite nicely. Two, this is, I think, of these films, probably the one that sort of promotes the idea of family the most to me, because it's very much the one that has a number of levels where it can be enjoyed by different people, different members of your family. So for the kids, you obviously have a lot of the animations, you have the beautiful segments where they go into the chalk drawings, you have Mary and Bert dancing with the waiter penguins, uh, you have the merry-go-round horses winning the derby. Uh, I shouldn't do that hand gesture, that did not look like winning a derby, that looked like very something, very adult. You have... You have those moments. You obviously have all of the beautiful musical numbers, which can be appreciated by by a lot of people. You have the very classic songs of like Spoonful of Sugar, Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, which even now I still, every time I go to Jane uh, Jane's Calamity at Porter's in Cardiff, we'll still sing along to and have the sort of Cockney dance, uh, Cockney dancing competition. Uh, Chim uh, Chim Chimney, which I believe was the song that won best song at the Oscars for Mary Poppins, if I'm correct. Uh, Beautiful tension. Best, yeah. Uh, best music, original song, Chim Chim. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I know some things about this film. That's good to know. And you obviously have Feed the Birds, which obviously then has really important musical score for probably my favourite sequence of the film, because this is the part where I feel that the adults especially could really get behind this film. Because uh, obviously I've talked about everything that the kids might enjoy, but for adults is very much that idea of just how you look at childhood in reality versus your own sort of aging and the idea of uh, growing up and trying to support the family. Um, are you really looking out for the best interests of your family? Or are you just doing uh, just going for material gains? So the fact that you have the sequence where George has just had all of these home truths, the fact he's got to go and face the bank after the financial crisis his children almost caused for the bank, uh, which is just great. Just watching all of these bankers go, stop service, stop service. And just watching them pile the money in and just loads of people just like 
thudding on the doors, just trying to get their money back. The fact that he has to walk through the dark streets of London and you just have the beautiful, powerful score of Feed the Birds in the background, just demonstrating just how much he has sort of just lost lost touch with most of reality. Um, and it just re-watching it last night, it just it's it's weird how much it caused me to have genuine shivers just because of how powerful those those moments were. Even the moments where he's looking at the steps where the bird woman would be just not seeing her there and just having the way he sort of reacts to it is just sort of there's just like a frightened reaction of just what what's happened here. Um and then it just finishes with the very beautiful and weirdly my favourite song from the film, uh, Let's Go Fly a Kite, which again is a very family activity. That's the sort of thing that you could imagine a family watching this film and just thinking, yeah, you know what, let's go outside, let's go and do something together. And I think that's the sort of thing that, God forbid, whenever I have a family, um, that's the sort of thing I would like, I would like to do, is just have that moment where I can just be inspired by something and just go yeah let's go and do something as as like a unit um and just really just really bond together and yeah that's just those loads of the feelings that this film invokes for me just because obviously as well a lot of the film derives its plot around very magical circumstances which again just has a very enchanting thing and anytime you have a film that associates sort of magic um it already has a Christmassy feel to it because of those sort of associations. Even though there is a beautiful cut of this film on YouTube called Scary Mary, where they do try to make a horror film out of scenes from Mary Poppins, and it's incredibly funny. Obviously, there are some caveats I want to put out. First of all, I understand that this butchers uh, the intentions of P.L. Travers, the, no uh, the original novelist of Mary Poppins, and caused... A significant response from her where she literally made her estate not want to engage with Disney again, something which only recently sort of disappeared with the release of uh, Mary Poppins Returns. Um, and yes, I understand that there are those sort of issues, but I think for the actual film itself, I think I think it's just very much like stands up. It's obviously not going to be a narrative masterpiece. It is very much a a scene by scene film where the scenes have very loose connections to each other, but it's very much just meant to sort of be a spectacle so that when you can just enjoy whatever spectacle you want, whether that be the chalk drawings, whether that be uh, Uncle Albert laughing on the ceiling, which is my favorite, my favorite section, uh, whether that just be uh, the, the chimney tops, which surprisingly, even though meant to be a very ugly landscape. They do find a weird beauty for all of it. Um, yeah, there's just so much I could say about this this film, but um, I think that might be boring for people. So that's generally my take on why I think it's a, a great Boxing Day film. Hey, Craig. Yeah. I know a man with a wooden leg named Smith. Yeah? What's the name of his other leg? <laughs> Obviously, because that comes up in the um, I love to laugh scene. My favourite thing about that is that I've, they've decided, you know, anytime somebody does a joke, you have the sort of drum. I've decided I want the new thing based on what they do in that sec section. Because instead of anything like that, they just they just really hammer in the sort of chords of the da 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 da. Anytime I make a joke, though, I'm just going to just do the punchline and just be like, da, 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 I love to laugh. <laughs> yeah, Edwin is an absolute dog. That's going to be my ringtone from now on. <laughs> what, my version of it, the actual yeah. original? 
David, you know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, it is, it is worth mentioning Edwin as well, because like I said, he, you know, he's so closely associated with like Disney in a way, mainly just from like these, you know, hit this role and like his role in Ascent Wonderland. Um, and not to bring the tone down too much, but when you look at like what he's most known for, uh, looking at his uh, IMDb, it's like Alice in Wonderland, like, oh, yeah, you know, like Mary Poppins, ah, you know, Babes in Toyland, ah, the Diary of Anne Frank, like, oh, oh, God, you know, so quite a different turn, I assume, there for for Mr. Wynn. But yeah, I think uh, it, it very much is, like you said, Craig, it's that kind of storybook element of going to the different tales, you know, kind of like Alice in Wonderland as well, of, you know, and then it kind of culminated in at the end because I as a kid never kind of saw it as like oh this ending has just kind of like come out of nowhere and I never thought of it as like it's like oh this is what's all been built into oh the kite it's, it makes perfect sense that's kind of even though I haven't like seen it fully that's the the issues I had with like the trailers for the Mary Poppins Returns is that like they're bringing out the kite and like it's all about like flying a kite again I'm like it wasn't about the flying the kite it was about the family coming together and just doing an activity, like you said, and I think what, you know, that's a bit the sort of, you know, it's, you have to kind of take, you know, Saving Mr. Banks very much with like, you know, a, a pinch of salt because it's like how much of it is actually so like real um, and it's very much told from a Disney point of view. But it is very endearing when you have that scene where P.L. Travers kind of like goes, oh, he fixes the kite, you know, and she gets like emotional about it and like she is sort of on board with it. And you can imagine out of everything that maybe that was the bit that she was on board with because obviously it was the animation she had some of the biggest problems with. But the kind of like emotional, you know, resolution of the human characters does seem like something that she would be on board with that's the thing this is also the first time i've seen this film in full after watching saving mr banks which obviously makes it very clear what the purpose of this film is so i think that's why when watching this film again with the context of mind of this is very much meant to be the redemption story for mr banks it's not necessarily about the children and their welfare it's making this father a better man just watching all of his interactions throughout just make a lot just a lot more sense so again like you can see why disney in saving mr banks very much wanted to stress the scene of him walking through london as well as yeah this is his powerful he gets it all scene um that just uh that just means that yeah we can just buy into it it also helps the fact that i also just love david tomlinson again he's somebody who has uh, a fair bit of Disney background with him because he's also in uh, Bedknocks and Broomsticks uh, as well in a very completely different role, but just his presence is something I find vastly entertaining. And uh, Dick Van Dyke. Oh, is also obviously. Just amazing everywhere and everything he goes. D- to be fair, Bert is, is really the sort of changing force of the film. He's very much the one who's constantly present and he's the one... What I find weird is that they, 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 they try to make this film very much about our oh, Mary Poppins is the saviour, and yet she does very little to actually change George's mind. It's very much Bert who goes in, just explains to the children, I feel so I feel sorry for your father. He's he's a bird trapped in a cage because of his job and he needs he needs saving. And he's the one who has like essentially a beautiful pep talk with with Mr. Banks, because he 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 lays out what the message behind spoonful of sugar actually was and just in ways in which he's able to digest and just yeah he is basically the hero that and also just 
Half of his antics are fantastic. Like, the amount of choreographed perfect dancing with penguins, just just incredible. Yeah. And although it is Mary Poppins who is the hero, because she's the one who initiates the affair with Dick Van Dyke's character to bring him into it. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, if it wasn't for their, you know, seditious affair behind the scenes. Then... It's a very sordid way of talking about their relationship. <laughs> oh, it is, yeah. They're filthy. Is that a chimney sweep pun? <laughs> it's also one of those rare films as well, and probably because it's so beloved, but, you know, there's so many examples of where people are just like, oh, you know, that was complete trash because they couldn't even get the accents right and all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, like Mary Poppins has just got away with it so much with like Bert, you know, it's just such a famous accent in which people are like, what is he doing? That is not like, you know, Cockney, but people just, it's kind of like a part of the affection of the film. It's kind of like, like Disney, and you know, a lot of their animations and stuff in which they're kind of doing this weird American English hybrid. There's not like a defined accent. I think it kind of falls into that category in which it just becomes its own thing. It kind of becomes this kind of voice you put on at story bedtime kind of element nobody's kind of looking at it as a kind of like oh this needs to be a actual depiction of like a london accent even the accent is fantasy it's got the genre to a t yeah Um, and to be fair accents do change significantly over time so what we imagine a cockney accent to sound like if someone did like if danny dyer done that character like he wouldn't sound like an historical cockney at all (laughs) So we don't know. Maybe Bert is spot on what, you know, Cockney sounded like in the 19th century. We don't really know. Maybe Dick Van Dyke did travel back in time and <laughs> like trained with some actual chimney sweeps. I now have an absolute desire to see uh, a version of the stage show Mary Poppins with Di- uh, with Danny Dyer playing playing Bert. He's like, all right, Mary. All right. All right. Just get the fuck up the chimney. All right. All right. Stop fucking round. But to go back to what you're saying as well about like who, you know, is the hero and plays more of an active role. That's why I appreciate about Mary Poppins as well is that, you know, they kind of have like a similar thing with like Nanny McPhee and stuff. It's like these kind of like doing it through like a kind of a harsh reality uh, or like through like a subtle kind of way. It's not like she's like there as like an active force or being like too on the nose about it. I kind of like that she's almost like a secondary character that she's kind of there, like not so much pulling the strings but kind of just doing these subtle things or having these subtle remarks to George um, or just the things that she does um, to kind of allow them to find their way naturally, which I think is is quite effective. And in a way, again, sort of like undermines the idea of a sequel as well. Like I almost wish that the sequel would just be like her and some other family, not kind of return into the other family. But like something else I love about it and I think like is very sort of like well, which I think is interesting, the fact that Chicken Run is like the newest film that we've talked about. But even that, because we're talking about it being based on like the Grey Escape and it's very like much like a visual aesthetic thing because it's stop motion. But here I remember like I was actually moved to tears watching uh, a program called Prop Culture on Disney Plus. I recommend watching it. It's quite a nice sort of like film history program in which they look at like specific props and uh pieces of you know set and memorabilia from uh famous disney movies and the mary poppins one is so it's their opening episode for a reason because you know they they show about like how the they've recreated walt's office and it's got like this globe which is the the famous 
Feed the Birds globe. And I think that's kind of like a recreation. I think the original one was lost, but they recreated it as much as they could. Um, and that's kept in like the recreation of Disney's office. But it's just the fact that this film has such a kind of like natural feel to it. It's like the umbrella, you know, you can kind of see it. You can see it crafted and the costumes and the bit that's all like got me in that prop culture is that they they show the actress who played Jane, like her old like coat and hat, you know, like the yellow one she wears at the end. And as soon as she like unboxes it, she just goes to bits. She's like, oh my God, you know, like, because she's like, look at that. Look how small it is. And like the fact you can see this like old woman now, and this is like a costume that she once somehow fitted into. And it just has such a history behind it that you can sort of see the age and, and sort of nostalgia in it. It's just such a moving like image. And I think that this film has so many props and moments like that it was also great just sort of uh because this is also the first time i've watched it in a certain hd ratio where i've i've finally been able to work out how they did certain things and just being like oh thank god i finally understand this now just i understand the power of the green screen a lot more than i did before no craig they used magic (laughs) I know I was always impressed with like the nannies when they all get like blown away and stuff like that even for like the beard you're like how did they do that and again like the flying you're like how did they do that at this time you know the the shots of London and stuff like that and it's great again it's like the 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 playful nature of it and the kind of theatrics that's why it kind of makes sense to put it on stage is like the neighbors like the captain with like the whole boat thing on the house it's like why would this exist and why do they just accept that these are their neighbors but you can't just accept it for the storybook nature of the, of the film because it's a war film <laughs> he, he yeah we have to acknowledge the fact he does open fire on a shitload of civilians hmm and like, what's the rationale? He's just, oh, the chimney sweeps are amassing. All right, let let let's show let's show them what for. Why? The chickens are organizing. Wait, no, chimney sweeps. <laughs> I also just love the choreography of every single time. It's a certain time they all get in the right positions and they just beautifully shove the props to one side, just effortlessly. Also, just has uh, produces one of my favorite lines of the film. It's like, oh, and by the by the way, if I have a. Uh, an instrument put in front of me. I expect it to be tuned. But George, you don't even play. That's funny. I always carry it with me. It must be here somewhere. What? My tape measure. What do you want it for? I want to see how you two measure up. Here it is. Good. Come along then. Quickly. Head up, Michael. Don't slouch. Just as I thought. Extremely stubborn and suspicious. I am not. See for yourself. (laughs) Extremely stubborn and suspicious. Suspicious. Now you, Jane. Hmm. Rather inclined to giggle doesn't put things away. (laughs) How about you? Very well. Hold this for me. As I expected, Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Okay, so that was our final movie choice for Perfect Boxing Day films. So now we have the tough choice to choose which one goes into the movie vault as perfect festive 
Boxing Day viewing. Craig, you've just talked about Mary Poppins. Do you stick by your choice? So after, you know, watching the majority of these and listening to all of the explanations, what what is what is your rationale? So I will say this is probably one of the hardest choices I've had to make on this show for a while because I, I gin for the I, I think as because well Because you watched a film you enjoyed. <laughs> that's part of it. No, it's I watched multiple films I enjoyed. Yeah. Um here's the thing, right? I think obviously I didn't get a chance to fully watch Zulu, so I can't put a vote towards that. But if everyone else felt it was worthy, I'd be willing to support it. I do feel, however, die very much it portrayed the opinion of, yeah, I watched this film again. Yeah, it's probably not quintessential viewing. Um so maybe. Um, with the others, <clears throat> I think there's definitely a strong shot. I'm still going to say Mary Poppins just because of my personal experience of Boxing Day. I think Bridge of uh, Bridge on the River Kwai is not something that I've had enough associations of, say, of war dramas around that time. And then it's just the unfortunate thing of I first watched Chicken Run. I, I never watched Chicken Run around around the time of year that Boxing Day is. It's very much, I watched it when it came out. I watched it every now and then. But it was never sort of part of my quintessential Christmas time viewing. So I am going to vote for Mary Poppins. But I I don't object to any of these films. I do love the idea that this year Craig might be there on Boxing Day and Holmes Under the Hammer is on instead. And they're like, and now Holmes Under the Hammer. And it's like, where's well, Mary it, Poppins? Well, given that it's on a Sunday and it doesn't air on Sundays, I think I'm good. <laughs> The Christmas special of Homes Under the Hammer. <laughs> uh, Di, I feel uh, you need to, you know, sort of react to Craig's opinion there of Zulu. Is he correct in what he said? There's not really a lot of value in Zulu. There, if you want to look at how to just take a really simple concept and work a movie out of it, there's value there if you're interested in making your own war movie. But other than that, it's unoriginal. It's pretty bleak and dodgy nowadays as well. Um, and basically, until we have a movie called Zulu, which is actually features Zulu people as characters, I don't think this movie is worth giving the time of day to. Um, in terms of the others, um, I've not seen Bridge Over the, Wither, Over the River quite. Chicken Run and Mary Poppins, I think, in terms of Ardman, Ardman absolutely deserves to be there, but it should be the wrong trousers. I feel like having Ch- Chicken Run, we'll have to wait for another episode where we bring up the wrong trousers so i'm gonna go for mary poppins because it is a classic it is amazing and i re- saw it years ago and i remember everything you guys are talking about it you know it's um it, it really is memorable and iconic Liv, what do you think let's do this backwards first off we got zulu i think the one great thing about zulu for christmas day is aside from the last 20 minutes, the fact that you can kind of sleep through the middle bit and still get the rest of the film. And if you sleep through the middle bit, that is great for Boxing Day when you're kind of full of everything. Um, Then I'm probably going to have to go third, Mary Poppins, because whilst I think that is probably the greatest film of all of them in terms of nostalgia and family and everything, I think that's a film for every Sunday, not necessarily a film for... The, the Christmas Day, Boxing Day kind of vibe. That's You should be watching it every day, Craig. I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> um, then 
I'm going with second. It's got to be Chicken Run for the pure reason of the BBC orchestrate all Ardman films being uh, like shown over the Christmas period. So we have been socially conditioned to believe they are Christmassy. But then I've still got to go with Bridge on the River Choirs first for the following reason. In the middle of the film, Major Shears is told that he will be parachuting in with the commandos without any training. And he is being forced to do this. He does not want to do this. And his response is to ask a question with or without a parachute. If that does not embody the mood of half the British people on Boxing Day, I don't know what does. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm yeah, I'm kind of torn because I think that I, I agree with everyone else that I think Zulu kind of is out. I think it is very much a kind of like Boxing Day film, but it's almost kind of like what Liv said about Mary Poppins. It kind of is almost just a general Sunday film as well of just like, at your granddad's watching it with your dad something to put on after your sunday lunch or something like that so i don't think there's anything like strictly kind of like boxing day christmas time about it but it very much is like a kind of sunday movie um and there was as i said you know with the fact that it just wasn't the best out of the bunch kind of like knocks it out and i i kind of do have to admit myself the fact that i mentioned like the wrong trousers and you know as Di said in terms of mentioning like Wallace and Gromit, etc. And the fact that Liv pointed out that, you know, we've been conditioned to see Chicken Run as Christmassy just because of the BBC. I kind of am like, yeah, I, you know, I, I can see that. And I think while I would suggest it as a Christmas film or as a Boxing Day film, as to whether it's the one, I don't think it is, you know, I, I have to admit. So I am really torn between Mary Poppins and Bridge on the River Kwai because I do think that even though while Zulu didn't, quite have that boxing day nature to it there's something about bridge on the river Kwai that is just screaming to me that it is i don't know if it's just because it's got more of a kind of like uh, i don't know like just the story elements are more similar to things like the gray escape and what we were talking about about that element of like you know being a prisoner and that kind of like collaboration aspect uh and you know the fact that it, it's kind of up there with films like you know gone with the wind and ben hur and all of that kind of stuff you know but then mary poppins like craig you know my experience is very much that it is very much a, that film that you would have at uh boxing day or christmas time and you've got a lot of elements like the singing and the dancing and the the snow globe and the visuals that stick to that that time of year so i would say who is christmas time really for is it for the baby Jesus? Which which of these films would the baby Jesus enjoy more? <laughs> if the children mattered more than the nationalists on Christmas, we wouldn't have the Queen's speech. We also wouldn't have like loads and loads of toy presents given to the kids. What's your point? <laughs> so, I know how to resolve this, actually. I have a list of Christmassy elements of films. One, alcohol. That's in Bridge on the River Kwai, not Mary Poppins. It is. Shandy. The Shandy and Mary Poppins. Alcohol is in both then. Patriotism, both. Yes. Weather is in both. Yes. Building things? Yes. Both. Damn it. Community spirit, both. Going yep. on walks, both. Music, both. Damn it, it's a tie. Right. I have a compromise. I don't think David will like this, but this is the compromise. Mary Poppins is already in the movie vault, right? Here's my compromise. 
we put in Bridge on the River Kwai, but we get rid of the caveat of Mary Poppins gets kicked out. Or we a way of getting both of them would be to take all of the songs from Mary Poppins and edit them in to Bridge on the River Kwai. I was I was thinking, I was like, Bridge on the River Kwai doesn't have musical numbers, which you know, that's the advantage that Mary Poppins does have. Um We'll just re-edit them into it. So now is Alec Guinness singing on the rooftops. But instead of just a spoonful of sugar, it's uh, just a spoonful of spam. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, I can I can get on board with Craig's thing. I think the fact that we're not putting all four in or anything like that, I think that I think we've justified Mary Poppins' position in the vault because while we didn't have a big conversation about it before, we've all clearly shown our love for it. And I think while both, like Liv said, are kind of, like you could almost say the bridge on the River Kwai is kind of like a Sunday film like Zulu is, not strictly just like a box in day one. I think that it, they kind of both represent both sides of what you could have on Boxing Day, that kind of family fear, or you're more like saw like grandfather kind of war epic, um, which I don't think either film would sort of come up in the future again. Whereas like Di said, you could be talking about Hardman again in the future. Uh, you could be talking about like uh, other sort of like classic war war films. But I think both of these do sort of have a strict kind of tie to this kind of year in a, in a weird way. So yeah, I, I think the bridge on the River Kwai is the one to go in and Mary Poppins stays in the vault, I think. It's a good compromise. So yeah, into the movie vault goes the bridge on the River Kwai and uh, Mary Poppins keeps her place in the movie vault. Okay, end game time. So we've just had uh, a day of Boxing Day movies, so I think it's fitting that we now have a day of boxing movies. This is what we're going to be doing. I've taken the Watch Mojo list top 10 boxing movies, and I've taken all of the entries off of that list. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give them to you, and I want you to tell me what what's the ranking of these films according to Watch Mojo. But there is an added twist. I'm going to give you 11 movie titles. One of them is not on the list. If you include this list on your rankings, you lose two points. Okay, so does that, is everyone clear on the rules of this game? I just love it if it was like The Lion King. <laughs> okay, so what, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read them out. I'm also going to send them to you on a private message on Facebook. What I'll do is I'll read them out, send them to you. You'll have 60 seconds to come up with your order. I want you to then send me that order. Uh, and then we'll go through one by one to see uh, to see who is correct. Okay, are we ready for the movie titles? Yes. Okay, so I've put them in alphabetical order to get rid of any possibility of where they ranked on the film. So your films are... Ali, The Boxer, Cinderella Man, Fat City, The Fighter, Girl Fight, The Hurricane, Million Dollar Baby, Raging Bull, Rocky, and Rocky Two. What on earth is this list? As I've explained, this is a list of potential movies on Watch Mojo's top ten boxing movies. <laughs> Thank you, Craig. 
Anyway, you have 60 seconds. Your time starts now. Wait, wait. <laughs> Maybe oh, use gosh. abbreviations if uh, some of them are too long. One, just put a number on by the name on the list that I sent you. Don't tell us logical things. Mm. <laughs> oh wait, I put the box too far down. It's called the box. It should be a really good one. Okay, could you now send me your lists so I know that you're not editing them along the way? I've sent you it, but with the numbers rather than the order. Okay, that's that's fine. I can deal with that. Yeah. So just check, just checking. There are some films you've left off this list, yeah. The eleventh one I left. No, this eleventh one is just unnumbered. Okay, we'll we'll go through it anyway. So, okay, so live. What do you think entry number 10 was on this list? So that's the last entry. Okay, I, I know. Um, girl fight. You've gone for girl fight. Okay. Uh, die. What I'm have not you confident. In... What have you gone for? Fat City. Okay. Number 10, girl fight. Girls don't have the same power as boys. Oh. <laughs> So Liv is... not being confident makes you win. So Liv is correct. Uh, that was the first movie appearance of Michelle Rodriguez, who later goes on to star in The Fast and the Furious. Obviously, this also means that um, it's one of those sort of games where, like, if you get one wrong, it means you've definitely got another one wrong later on down the line. But it's fine. Wait, I just realized Fast and the Furious is about family. It's a Christmas movie. <laughs> it's a Boxing Day oh, movie. Oh, there's, there's going to be some bastard who's made that connection. Don't worry, dude. <laughs> I'm going to get Liv to go through a list of, like, Christmas. it has to be a Christmas movie and, like, see how many of the Fast and Furious, like, match that list. All okay. of them. Right. <laughs> so, Dai, what do you think entry number nine was on this list? Um, I seem to have missed out number, number nine somehow. Yeah, I'm looking at this list. That's actually quite impressive. <laughs> I think I don't know. Um, I, well, I'll say Cinderella Man. I thought that was the one that isn't a boxing movie, but I'll say that. So you're going Cinderella Man. Liv? I don't know what it is. Wait, how many should be on our list? Well, I gave you 11. You gave us 11? Yes. One of them's not meant to be. One of them is not on this list. Somehow I've lost one in my list. I pasted it. And... Oh, yeah, you did give us 11. I've got Jesus this. Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay, Cinderella Man. Oh. Okay. So you're both saying that number nine is Cinderella Man? Yeah. Okay. Number nine, Fat City. Welcome to tonight's program of amateur So there's no points there. So. That has a young Jeff Bridges. Yeah? 
basically an overweight boxer meets a young up-and-coming boxer and they both share their misery together a lot of sense in my head i was thinking more sex in the city vibes sounded like a gangster kind of thing like fats welcome to fat city number eight live okay the boxer so live has gone for the boxer there is a problem though what is the problem um, I've seen one of the boxer and the fighter, and it was terrible, but I can't remember which one <laughs> it is. Right, okay. Well, it wasn't terrible enough to be number 10. You know that much at the moment. <laughs> okay, die. My number eight is the hurricane. Okay. Number eight, the boxer. 14 years I was locked up. See, I thought the boxer must be way higher up the list because it's called the boxer. <laughs> Yeah. That's why I was like, are these films like how accurate they are to boxing or just good films? <laughs> it's also weird because it's a Daniel Day Lewis film. So obviously that's one of It's the one I've seen. Yeah, so it's one of the very few ones that he films he's actually done. But yeah, he's playing a, a Belfast boxer during the times of the IRA. Okay. Number seven. Die, what do you think it is? Girl fight. So that's wrong. And live the girls. Um the fighter. So you've gone for the fighter. Number seven, the hurricane. From Ruben, Hurricane Carter has defeated the welterweight champion of the world. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the uh, Denzel Washington plays Ruben Carter. So obviously the story of the hurricane, uh, the man the authorities came to claim for something that he'd never done. Obviously the subject of the Bob Dylan song. Um, Yeah. Number six, Liv. Million Dollar Baby? And die. Ali. Number six, Ali. The champ is here! Ooh. <laughs> I knew it. I saw that and I thought, yeah, that's it. That's yeah. a six-rated movie on any list. What's, gr- what's great is how WatchMojo begin their analysis of this film. It's not the best uh, boxing movie. <laughs> It's like, well, no but shit. It was Slim Pickens. <laughs> so, um, do you remember? Do you remember who plays Muhammad Ali? Will Smith. It's Will Smith. Yeah, yeah. he's. Oh yeah. no. Yeah, I've seen the clips, and it's probably a bit overblown, but it did get an emotional reaction from people. It also covers the assassination of Malcolm X, or as debaters in the Wales Schools Debating Championship called him, Malcolm Ten. <laughs> um, uh, Die. who do you think entry number five is um the fighter so you've gone for the fighter live i have gone for raging bull number five cinderella man the cinderella man cinderella man yeah oh i like it so that has russell crowe Ah, uh, yeah. I thought I was like, where do I recognize this one from? A man like... with an excellent singing voice. <laughs> yeah, well, let, let's not go there. Number four, live. Surely this is number three. No. Have I skipped one? Probably. Let me look at your list. Your highly incorrect list that you've sent me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, why do you make us do challenges with? No, I can. I can still see. What have you done? You admitted two for some reason. Yeah, you took out Hurricane and Fat City for some reason. 
We've heard them both, so let's just assume your number four is incorrect unless you want to take one of your top three. <laughs> let's, well, I think my entire list is incorrect, so we'll go with that. Right, I'm just going to say for the sake of argument then, you think that number four is the hurricane. Die, what do you think number four is? Uh, Rock, the boxer. You've gone for the boxer. Number four, the fighter. We are now on number three. Die, what do you think it is? Million Dollar Baby. And Liv? Rocky (laughs) 2. Number three, Million Dollar Baby. Maggie Fitzgerald? Well, Maggie Fitzgerald, what's up? Oh. Oh. I love it. Is that where it's got confused? Number three, Rocky 2. What? (laughs) (laughs) Is that what's happened to you? Yeah. So, fun fact. uh, When watching this list... Uh, I predicted what the top three were going to be perfectly. But did I get the correct order? Di, what do you think the second best boxing movie is? Raging Bull. You're going for Raging Bull. Liv? I put Ali because I had better expectations. Number two, Rocky. (laughs) Oh. (gasps) How controversial is that? (laughs) I mean, come on. Now, note how my uh, usual caveat, uh, earlier caveat of, if you included the incorrect film, you lose two points. What two films have we got left that I haven't mentioned? Rocky Two and Raging Bull. Yes. So one of those was not on this list. Liv, what do you think the top film of this list was? Oh, God. Silence. Who chooses the Watch Mojo list? Is it the public a, or is it the critics? It's a it's a a voting poll thing. If it's the public, I reckon it's Rocky Two. That's on the list. But if it's film nerds, Raging Bulls in black and white. So okay. like, isn't it a bit of both? Don't they kind of just go off like what other people say? And yeah, yeah. But regardless, for the context of this game, Liv, what did you say the top film was? I I did say Rocky. So you said Rocky die? Me too. Okay, so in that case, you are both... So the question is, what film was number one of this list? Because, die, you didn't include Rocky 2 at all on your list. No. Well, I accidentally wrote number five, but I put five somewhere else, so I didn't include it, no. (laughs) If Rocky 2 is the number one film, it's a tie, and we have a tie break. If Raging Bull is the top film... Liv loses two points and die is the winner. But it, it's going to be Raging Bull because Rocky 2 can't beat Rocky. You never know. Empire Strikes Back, you know, you never know. Sequel better than the original. Oh, God. Number one, Raging Bull. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Which means Liv loses two points for including Rocky 2 on the list. I deserve that. And die with a. Score of two, you are today's winner. Congratulations. That was more exciting than Zulu. (laughs) I won't lie, the hardest part of that was writing the list. (laughs) (laughs) And to be fair, the only reason I won was because I misnumbered everything and accidentally put Rocky, gave Rocky two number five spot. And (laughs) and basically, I I typed it wrong. It would have been in my list, but I did it wrong. So I won by accident. It's like a traditional family game. Somebody screws up the rules, but everyone just goes along with it. (laughs) 
Awesome. Well, yeah. Uh, thank you guys. As uh, as we mentioned there, just like Christmas, a fun, crazy game. Uh, thankfully, it didn't turn into uh, any any squabbles or anything like that. But uh, yeah, play at home. <laughs> you know, if uh, at this Boxing Day period, and uh, do check out the Boxing Day films we have recommended, especially uh, the two that are in the movie vault, which is Mary Poppins and Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, We've had loads of fun today. Uh, We hope that everyone has had a Merry Christmas and has had, you know, despite all the struggles and problems we've had over the past year, I hope that everyone has had uh, a good 2021 and we wish you a Happy New Year for 2022. Uh, we'll be joining you in the new new year with lots of fun new stuff, which we'll tease very soon. But before that, uh, guys, is there any anything you want to shout about or refer people to? Uh, Di, you were talking recently about uh, your work in the museum. Yeah, there's a series of films, uh, historical kind of films created by um, volunteers from Cardiff People First, who are an ad- self-advocacy charity for people with a learning disability. They've helped us create a series of uh, kind of historical tours uh, our various parts of museums and the uh, Glamorgan archives as well. So they're really cool. You can check them out on the Cardiff People First YouTube account and all their social media and yeah. through the Museum of Cardiff as well. Yeah, definitely go check it out. And um, yeah, a good point as well about uh, giving at this time of year as well, if you can like give to certain causes and charities, that kind of thing. Uh, Liv, anything you want to shout out about or uh, refer people to? Well, not particularly, to be honest, though, if you want to see me review Shiver Baby every month for the entirety of the next year, you can follow me on Letterboxd at K-R-A-V-A-N-I-A. Awesome. Yeah, go check it out. And you can see your watch list there as well, which you got the dig to watch to check uh, your your opinion on archaeology films. Or maybe not. It's a Schrodinger's cat. You might leave it there. (laughs) In terms of like museums and stuff, I don't know if you guys saw this, but I'd recommend people go check it out in person or online if you can. But the T-Rex that they put a jumper on, I don't know if you've seen, they put a Christmas jumper on a T-Rex in the London Natural History Museum. They made like an actual festive jumper and it's like his little arms with the little sleeves. It's, It's really funny. So uh, go check that out if uh, if you want more m- museum madness. Craig, uh, anything you want to shout out about? What can people expect now in the new year? What have we got coming up? Well, our New Year's special, I, I, I presume is what we'd be calling it, is one that I can actually tell you basically no details about because it is the episode that the winners of our Endgame Champions Cut of Ed Mason and Alex McCready will be hosting and constructing themselves. So David and I actually have no idea what that's going to be about, but it is very much their prize. And we're, I say we're looking forward to it. We're, we're slightly terrified about what's actually going to happen, but that's going to be the start to our year. And then that's going to kick off uh, essentially a revamp from us in terms of how we choose the films worth discussing for the weeks to come. But we'll explain all of that when the episode itself happens. But, you know, over the Christmas period, just what's left of this year enjoy our previous episodes uh enjoy our previous end games and think about if you had the chance to win one of our episodes what you'd want us to talk about 
definitely there's going to be a lot of fun and madness in the new year especially regarding that episode if you want to see how uh, ed and alex won that champion title then go check out the champions cut you can also check out our previous episode talking about bond films which was a big planned episode so we've had some very fun discussions here for the end of the year and uh, perfectly encapsulated here now talking about some very famous films uh, for boxing day movies which have uh, put some very honorable and uh, well-deserved movies into the movie vault so thank you again for joining us have a fantastic and happy new year we hope you've had a very merry christmas thank you again to die and live and we'll see you all very soon merry christmas and a happy new year bye 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 start learning the words of old lang syne There's going to be some bastard who's made that connection. Don't worry, David.